Dear Father in heaven, Lord, once again we thank you for your love and mercy. And Lord, we thank you for standing for us in this great controversy, Lord, this battle between good and evil. And we just thank you for being willing to take our side, to invite us in, even as sinners, Lord, to forgive our sins, to cleanse our sins, to transform our characters, but most of all, Lord, to stand in our place. And Lord, now we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit as we open your word, as we study these truths, as we learn about your judgment, Lord, I just ask you to please touch our hearts and draw us near to you. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our theme, it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. This is going to be a very heavy theological discussion tonight, judgment. And we're going to talk about a very, another very important prophecy. So please, please, follow along in your Bibles. Also, go back home, listen to the audio, check the verses that I quote, and even the verses all around them. Test it by the Bible. So last night, or I'm sorry, Saturday night, we talked about Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' message. The final message that was to go out to the entire world before Jesus comes. In fact, we learned that this has to happen before Jesus will come. It is one of the most urgent messages in all of history. It is our message. God's people's message. One that God has given to our generation to carry forth to the rest of the world. And it is relevant today for our time. As I've said in multiple messages, it's not some ancient book that has no application to today. It's for today. For this very moment that you're living in. So tonight we're going to study a very specific portion of a prophecy that will open our eyes to the final judgment. What does the Bible say about this judgment? When will judgment happen? And I get, if you were here Saturday night, I gave you a little sneak peek into that, didn't I? Yep. And if you weren't here, that's okay, because we're going to go right back into it. <laughs> we're going to let Jesus speak to us from scriptures. Let Jesus tell us about this judgment. Turn me to Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Page 1183. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Page 1183. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. Hour of his judgment is what? Has come. So, Saturday night we studied that to fear God means to obey God, remember? Obedience. But it also meant, means to respect God and to give glory to God. Now here is a call for holiness. It's a call for surrender, submission, and obedience to God. His word and his commands and his expectations. And I want you to notice what I've underlined up here, because this is going to be the heart of our lesson tonight. The Bible says that the hour of his judgment has come. Notice it doesn't say God's judgment will come, or is yet to come, or may come. But prior to the second coming of Christ, the Bible says it has come. The hour of God's judgment has come. Means the clock has struck the hour. The world has entered into a significant time just before the coming of Jesus. 
And we're going to learn about it tonight. And we're going to know exactly what and when that actually is. So what else does the Bible and the book of Revelation have to say about judgment? We're going to see tonight that the prophecies of the books of Daniel and Revelation blend to share incredible details about the timeline of history. They're going to reveal events relating to Jesus' first arrival, his first coming. And then we're going to see it point to what's going to happen leading up to his second coming. Both books are going to provide us vital information about this final judgment. As I've said multiple nights, Jesus does not leave us blind. He does not leave us alone to figure it out ourselves, to try to guess. It's not a guessing game. That's not how the Lord operates. He will open the mysteries, open up to us through his own words in the Bible. You're going to see Revelation gives us details about the judgment. Gives us the what. Daniel gives us the when and where. Most importantly, Jesus gives us assurance that it's going to happen and the assurance that you can be on the right side of judgment. One thing that we can be sure of is there should be no reason to fear the judgment of Christ as long as he's on your side, as long as you've chosen him, accepted him. He has given us assurance that we can face the judgment with confidence, with assurance. It tells us that the judgment will determine what reward Jesus gives every individual upon his second coming. And remember, we kind of touched on that at the end of the last message. Judgment is going to happen before the reward. Turn me to Revelation chapter 22. Last page of your Bible. Page 1190 if you're using a pew Bible. Revelation 22 verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. So when he comes, is he coming with his reward? Yeah, he says, when I come. And he says, I'm coming quickly. Come Saturday night. We'll see how quickly. He's going to be bringing his reward to everyone. The master himself clarifies this point for his disciples. Turn me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, page 952. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then we'll reward each according to his works. Back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, page 1188. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we see a picture kind of being drawn out here. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Notice the Bible is referring to something called the books. And that these books are opened before the whole universe. This is an important point. 
And from these books, God is going to decide the reward that he gives every person at his second coming, according to these books. Everyone will be judged on whether they have confessed their sins and allowed the righteousness of Christ to be counted in place of their record. Or if they have rebelled against God and refused Jesus' offer of atonement. Technically, we've all rebelled against God. Amen? According to the Bible, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you have a chance. If you accept Jesus' perfect record, his sinless sacrifice, you can meet the judgment. To those that refused, their entire record of sin stands against them. But friends, I want you to focus on this. The judgment is not just about looking at what men and women have done. Notice it is the hour of his judgment. It says his judgment. That is God's judgment. You see, something else is going to happen at this judgment. Somebody else is going to be judged. God himself. God himself is going to be judged. Remember, millennia ago in heaven, angels led by Lucifer rebelled against God. God had given these angels, just like us, the power of choice, the power of free will. And with that choice, they decided to challenge God's authority to rebel against his government. Lucifer said, God is unfair. God is unjust. God is a vindictive tyrant. He is a wrathful judge. That was Lucifer's accusation against God in the courts of heaven. And the rebellion in heaven introduced a question in the universe about God's character, about his fairness, about his integrity. So I want you to think about this and wrap your head around this. This judgment is not solely about us. This judgment that Revelation describes is not because God doesn't know who's saved or lost. He's God. He knows. Knows the beginning to the end. There's much more going on here. You see, God is so fair, so just, so loving, that he opens the records of human lives before the whole universe for all to see that everybody who is lost deserves to be lost. They're lost because of their own decisions, their own choices. God will reveal that they're not lost because he just picked names out of a hat. It wasn't an arbitrary choice to save some and destroy others. Friends, this is very important. There is falsehood in some of the Christian church about this predestination concept. And that's not how God operates. We get to choose our path. So the major theme of the book of Revelation is a conflict between Christ and Satan. Remember that great controversy, that war in heaven that spilled over into earth? Well, this final judgment that we're going to learn about tonight resolves that conflict. It reveals the truth 
and Satan will be exposed as a liar. You see, God reveals in the judgment that he has done everything he can to save. And Satan has done everything he can to destroy. We're going to see the revealing of both sides' characters. Both sides' hearts. And then that's going to reflect on those who chose each of the two sides. Anybody that has lost... It's not because God pointed his finger and said, well, you're lost and you're saved and you're lost. You're you're saved. No, they're lost because of their own decisions, because of their own choice, because of their own free will. They're lost because of their decisions. They're lost because they rejected his grace. They rejected his pardon. They're lost because they chose to be lost. Revelation reveals many details about God's work of judgment. But we ask the first question, where does this judgment actually take place? Where is it going on? Is it going on here on earth? Is it going on in an earthly courtroom? Or could it be happening in heaven itself? Well, my friends, the book of Revelation reveals vivid scenes of the hour of God's judgment. But for us to discover the where and when of God's judgment, we must turn back to the book of Daniel. Remember, we started there earlier in the series. You see, Daniel unlocks many mysteries in Revelation. God intended us for us to study those two books together. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, the prophet describes looking up into heaven in vision. And then Daniel writes these incredible words. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Page 864. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the ancients of days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? Powerful. Look at the symbolism and the imagery that the Lord shares with us. So who are these ten thousand times ten thousand beings that we read about? They're angels of God. Cherubim and seraphim. In this scene of glory, this scene of beautiful splendor takes place, not on earth, but in heaven, in the very throne of God. The court was seated. My friends, this is not the Supreme Court. This is the highest court in the universe. And there is no appeal. This is the court. So to answer our question, where does the judgment take place? We find the answer in the Bible, in heaven, not on earth. Of course, the next question, when? We want to know that, right? When? When does this take place? We noted in the 
first angel's message in Revelation chapter 14 that declared the hour of God's judgment has come. So, I ask you, is this message before or after the second coming, based on what we've studied? Before. So if the judgment has already started before the second coming, and if all the signs of the times that we have studied tell us that the second coming is very near, could it be that the judgment in heaven has already begun? Could be, right? It's starting to fall into place. It's a possibility. Could it be that when Christ descends, the judgment will have already been finished? And those that are resurrected and caught up to meet him in the air have been declared in the judgment as righteous through Jesus? Could they have been saved by the blood of Jesus already before Jesus comes? That's what the Bible says. Their characters have been renewed in the image of Jesus. And they reflect in him in both word and deed. My friends, it's more than just reading the words. It's practical application and total transformation. Their lives has passed through the judgment because they have surrendered themselves to Jesus. And could it be that those that have been destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming, those that are ultimately and eternally lost, have had their fate already decided by the choices that they've made and the choices that they did not make? Does Daniel tell us when the judgment takes place? Well, notice what Jesus himself says in the book of Revelation chapter 22. We read it earlier. Revelation 22, 12, page 1190. It says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So according to Jesus... When he comes back, the reward that is to be given has already been decided. Because he is giving it to them when he comes. He has to already decide who's going to get what reward right before he gets here to dole it out. According to this verse, as well as many others in the Bible, the judgment will take place before Jesus comes. Before Turn me back to Daniel. This time, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, page 866. We're going to read something amazing in Daniel chapter 8. Incredible. That's going to connect this verse and the concept of a judgment with the coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, we got a couple of things going on here. First, we have a time period, don't we? 2,300 days. 2,300 days. What's the significance of that? That's a pretty specific number, isn't it? It's an exact number. And what's the event? There is obviously some sort of timeline that's going to be associated with this prophecy. And my friends, we need to understand that if we're going to understand this judgment concept, this timeline, this prophecy. Let's continue in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. 
Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came to me where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. He said, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So what does this vision refer to? What is this that Daniel's been shown? What does it refer to? The time of the end. So according to what we've studied so far, is it safe to say that this vision, that this prophecy applies to us? Absolutely, right? We've studied it in the Signs of the Times. We've studied it in the Daniel 2 prophecy. We've established from the Bible that we're living at the end of time. So if this prophecy, this vision, applies to the time near the end, it applies to our time. It's something we need to know about. This prophecy is relative to us, which means it must be of critical importance for us to understand it. And the Bible says that the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now this might be a little bit difficult to understand, but it was not difficult at all for Daniel to understand. Because, you see, Daniel was a Jew. And Daniel lived during the days of the Old Testament sanctuary. Remember I mentioned that a little bit in a previous message. So what does the cleansing of the sanctuary actually mean? Well, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. And we're going to find out what this cleansing of the sanctuary means. So we can apply this to our understanding of this judgment. And there's an important text that was going to give us a huge clue. Turn me to Exodus chapter 25. Page 75. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So we've studied about the sanctuary when we looked at Revelation's lamb, Jesus Christ, to whom all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed. Remember? We talked about all those innocent animals that were killed, and they were symbols that pointed towards the true lamb, Jesus Christ. We learned that it was his life that was given for us that was the real sacrifice, and that we were going to find that that lamb and the sanctuary play an important role in this prophecy. Well, think about this. It's amazing that through God's people, even though they rejected him so many times, so often, he still wanted to do what? Dwell among them. He wanted to be with his people. He yearns for us to be with him. Now, friends, this should be a huge encouragement to us all as it reminds us that God's sole desire is to be with us his people. It's what he longs for. You see, the sanctuary in the Old Testament was a place where God would meet with his people. There were several parts to it, and there were many services that went on in the sanctuary. Many people do not understand this important element, and we need to make this clear tonight. All of the services in the sanctuary were symbols that pointed to Jesus. They pointed to Jesus. They pointed to something that Jesus would do in our lives, in the lives of the believer. 
It revealed that Jesus, in many ways, it revealed his heart. It revealed his role. It revealed so much about Jesus' character. And it also will reveal to us what it is he's doing right this moment. It is also a model that reveals prophecy. Much of what is written in the book of Revelation and the other prophetic books are quotes or references to the sanctuary. So in order to understand time prophecy, my friends, we must understand the sanctuary. You see, the sanctuary was divided into two parts. The outer court and then a tent-like structure called the tabernacle. And in that outer court, there was an altar of burnt offering. And that tent-like structure was divided into two parts. You had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. And in that most holy place is where God would meet with his people. That was the presence of God. So if a man was living in the Old Testament, and he committed a sin, if he got angry, if he stole something, if he lied to somebody, if he had lust in his heart, Remember, we talked about this. He would get a lamb, and he'd bring that lamb to the sanctuary. The lamb must be without spot, without blemish. And then he would confess his sin over the head of that lamb. The sinner's guilt was symbolically transferred to this perfect lamb. That word symbolically is important. The wages of sin are death. The Bible tells us that. So the lamb would die in the place of that sinner. The perfect lamb was slain and its blood would be caught in a basin. The lamb's body would be put on the altar in the court. This would point forward to Christ's body that would be offered at Calvary. Jesus died in your place. Just as the lamb was their substitute. My friends, Jesus is our substitute. He paid the price for the sins and the crimes we committed. So just as the sins were transferred to the lamb that was slain, so your sins are transferred to the spotless lamb when you confess them. The altar is the symbol of the cross where Jesus died for each one of us. Every lamb that was slain was a hope for every Israelite that the Savior would come to redeem them. My friends, Jesus has already come for you. And you can be free from guilt when your life is truly surrendered to him, submitted to him. So after the animal was slain, the priest would leave the court and it would take the blood into the sanctuary. And then the priest would bring that blood of the sacrifice before the veil that separated the first and the second apartment in the sanctuary and, it would, and he would sprinkle it there. So what did this daily service in the sanctuary represent? Jesus Christ died on the cross. But after his death, he was resurrected and he ascended to heaven. Amen? Amen. You see, Jesus offers the merits of his blood in heaven on our behalf. He offers his spotless blood in our place of our guilty blood, our record. Jesus is the lamb that died for us. And Jesus is the priest who lives for us. He's the sacrifice and the priest. 
In heaven's sanctuary, he says, this man is one of mine. I pardon him. I have forgiven him. Accept my record in his place. You see, the, the priest did not go into the second apartment every day. Only once a year did the high priest enter into the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. There in that most holy place of the earthly sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant. This represents God's throne. Inside it was the Ten Commandment Law. Above it was the mercy seat. My friends, I love the concept, mercy seat. Amen? Mercy. With two golden angels representing the angels around God's throne. And between the angels was the Shekinah glory that represented the very presence of God. It represented God's presence on his throne. So when the high priest went into the sanctuary once a year, it was called the Day of Atonement. Now the word atonement, it was a day of judgment. It was also called the Day of Cleansing of the Sanctuary. Once a year. And on this most important day of the Jewish year, the high priest would go into that most sacred part of the temple before the Ark of the Covenant, before the representation of the throne of God. Every Israelite had to examine their heart. They knelt there and they said, God, wash me clean. God, give up my evil temper. God, please take away my bitterness. Please give up my lust. Lord, I give up my jealousy. I give up all. Every Israelite that did not participate was cut off from the entire camp of Israel. They were judged. They were separated. The cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament illustrated something that would happen. It pointed to something that would happen before Christ's coming. So while the daily sacrifices represented the sacrifice of Christ, the cleansing of the sanctuary occurred once yearly, and it pointed forward to something else. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Daniel chapter 8. We were there earlier. Page 866. It says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. My friends, this refers to the judgment. The judgment that takes place before the end of earth's history. The final judgment. The Day of Atonement was an illustration of God's judgment in the heavenly sanctuary that will occur just before Jesus' second coming. After this mysterious time period that we've learned about so far, 2,300 days, prophecy predicts a cosmic judgment that will take place before Jesus comes again. God will sit on his judgment throne. Everyone who has ever lived or is alive will be judged. Everyone. What's the meaning of these 2,300 days? 
I'm sure some of you are thinking, I don't understand, Dan. What's this 2,300 days situation? Well, we're going to see in the Bible that Daniel didn't understand either. So God sends Gabriel, the angel, to come down to earth to explain this prophecy to Daniel. Now, that's an explanation we, I want to hear. How about you? Absolutely. Turn me back to Daniel chapter 8. We read it earlier. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16. It says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The time of the end. As I said earlier, the 2300 days speaks to the end time. It foretells a time period of 2300 days. So your first question is, well, 2,300 days. How long is that? Well, if we're talking literal, it's about six years. So right away I can tell you that they can't be 2,300 literal days. <laughs> From Daniel's day does not take us down to the time of the end, right? It doesn't. You see, the book of Ezekiel, Written about the same time as the book of Daniel, actually, it's going to give us a key to the meaning of this time period. Remember, we'll use the Bible to interpret the Bible. This isn't Dan's version of the time prophecy. This is going to be the Bible's version. Turn me to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. Page 804. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. I've laid on you a day for each year. My friends, in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. A day equals a year. So in this prophecy that we're studying, a symbolic prophetic day is going to equal... One literal year. I have laid on you a day for each year. So 2,300 prophetic days equals 2,300 literal years. That will lead us down to the time of the end. Now let me ask you a question before we keep going. Does it make a little bit more sense now? Does it seem a little bit more logical? <laughs> Amen. Our Lord is a Lord of order. The picture becomes clearer. So, if the Bible gives us the starting point for the 2300 years, then we could actually calculate the end point, right? Because now we know the duration. We need one of the end points. Is Jesus, tonight, in that innermost sanction, sanctum of heaven's sanctuary, is he there right now? Is the call of judgment hour a call to commitment? A call to surrender? A call to allow Christ through his blood to cleanse our hearts? Could we be living in that special, unique time of earth's history today? Possible, isn't it? To find out, we're going to study the Bible. We're going to continue actually studying the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9 now, 
we're going to find an amazing prophecy about Christ's first coming. You see, in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel returns to give Daniel more information. Remember, Daniel was confused. And the Lord dispatched Gabriel to help Daniel understand. And we're going to see that he predicts Christ's baptism. We're going to see that he predicts the exact date of Christ's crucifixion. The exact date when the gospel would go to the Gentiles as the Jewish leaders reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is a prophecy that is focused around Christ. It's focused around Christ's life. It's focused around his sacrifice. It's focused on what he did for us, what he gave for each of us. This prophecy also will help us find the starting date of this 2300-day period that we learned of in Daniel chapter 8. Turn me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. So we see in the expansion that Gabriel gives that the first 70 weeks of the 2300-day prophecy are determined for Daniel's people. They're determined for the Jews. You see, the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. Seventy weeks are determined. The Hebrew word that we translate to determined means cut off. Amputated or cut off. So 70 weeks of this prophecy in Daniel 9 is actually cut off. But what is it cut off from? The 2300 days in Daniel chapter 8. So the first 70 weeks of the 2300 days apply to Daniel's people. They apply to the Jews. You see, the Bible tells us that there will be 70 prophetic weeks in this prophecy. And remember our math earlier, right? One day in prophecy equals how much? A year. A literal year. So what do we do with the 70 weeks? We calculate it into prophetic days. How many days are there in a week? Seven, amen. So 70 weeks times seven days in a week, 490 prophetic days. So this 70-week period that's cut off gives us 490 days or 490 literal years for this piece of the prophecy. As I said, remember, I laid on you a day for each year. Everybody following along? A day equals a year in prophecy. Therefore, these symbolic days in prophecy are 490 literal years. So, these 490 years are cut off from this 2300 years. And they relate specifically to the first coming of Jesus. You see, Jesus came to his own people. He came to the Jews. And he invited them to accept his word. To accept him as Messiah. And he called them to do something. To take the gospel to the rest of the world. He called not only them to him, but he called them to service. But they rejected him. 
So that first 490 years of prophecy are about Jesus and the Jews. So when does the prophecy start? You see, if we don't know when it starts, we have no way of finding out when it ends. So let's keep studying. Let's find it. The angel tells Daniel actually when it starts. Back to Daniel chapter 9, this time verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, this is kind of an important piece of information here. To restore and build Jerusalem. So what is that event? It's talking about a command that's going to go out to rebuild Jerusalem. Now follow along. In Daniel's day, Jerusalem was destroyed. It was laid to ruins, wiped out. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had attacked Jerusalem and overthrown it. Remember I talked about all the gold he took out of it, all the treasures? And Daniel was one of the captives that was taken back to Babylon. So the angel Gabriel comes down and says to Daniel, he says, there's this prophecy of 2,300 years, and the first part of this prophecy, this 490 years, is going to apply to you and your people. It's going to apply to the Jews. And Daniel, you're going to know when this prophecy starts because there's going to be a command issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. I want you to think about the significance of that event to Daniel. Would that be a significant thing? Yeah, his homeland was wiped out, was destroyed, the city that he loved, the city of God. So trust me, Daniel's going to take great significance and interest in a command to be issued to restore his beloved city. The verse continues, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Who is this Messiah the Prince? Jesus Christ. Anybody question that? Okay. If you do, speak up. Now Daniel's going to get excited. You see, seven and 62 weeks is 69 weeks. So now Daniel's thinking, are you saying that when I see the command passed, when the king writes that decree, from that time until Messiah is 69 prophetic weeks? That's what he's asking Gabriel. And Gabriel says, Daniel, that's exactly what I'm telling you. When does this prophecy begin? It begins upon the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Do we know when that command was issued? We absolutely do. We know from the Bible and we know from secular history. In the Bible, Ezra chapter 7 tells us that King Artaxerxes issues a decree And it's in 457 B.C. It's a time that provides Israel with a national identity. It restores their ties to their homeland, to their city. So now we see that this 2300 prophetic days has two parts. It has 490 years for the Jews. And then it has 1,810 years for the Gentiles. And it starts with a command to rebuild Jerusalem. And as I said, we can date that command to 457 B.C. Please Google this when you get home. 
Don't trust me because you see it up here in a slide, in a pretty slide. I could throw any number up there. Google it. So now we can begin tracing this 490-year time period because now we know the starting point, the anchor point. And that anchor point is 457 B.C. when the decree went to forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. You say, well, Dan, how can we be sure of that date? What I'm about to show you is going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is indeed the correct date. Are you ready for that? Amen. You see, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that from the start of the decree, which was 457 B.C., until Messiah the Prince comes, which is Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And that's just a fancy biblical way of saying 69 weeks. What does the word Messiah mean? It's Messiah the Prince. You see, the word Messiah means the anointed one. Was Jesus ever anointed? Well, yes, he was. Jesus was anointed at his baptism. In fact, Acts chapter 10 says that when he went into the water to be baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. So we know that his anointing was at his baptism. Therefore, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, it would be 69 prophetic weeks until the baptism of Jesus. You see, that decree went forth in the fall of the year. So if you go 69 prophetic weeks, which equals 483 literal years, forward on a timeline of history, from the fall of 457 B.C., it should take you to the baptism of Christ. And you see, 483 forward takes us, 483 years forward takes us to AD 27. AD 27. You say, well, okay, Dan, what's the big deal about AD 27? How do I know that's when Christ was baptized? Well, once again, the Bible. The Gospel of Luke actually helps us get an exact confirmation. Turn me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, page 993. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. So when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. You say, well, Dan, how do I, that doesn't tell me what year it was. What year was that? Well, let's back up in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate became governor of Judea. Oh, now wait a minute. Now we've got some information. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Once again, go to secular history. Google this. We know exactly when the Roman emperors took office and left office, usually by being killed or some other intrigue. They kept meticulous records. So we know the 15th year of Tiberius' reign was A.D. 27. The exact year of Jesus' baptism predicted by Daniel, the prophet. I want to ask you, can there be any doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? 
In fact, Daniel predicted the exact date of his baptism 500 years before Jesus was even born. The Bible tells us to know, therefore, and understand. God says, know it. God says, understand it. My friends, the Bible is mathematically accurate. It is incredible to know that God has such a meticulous plan. Amen? He has a plan for our lives just like God had a plan for Jesus when he walked on this earth. But the prophecy continues. Back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Messiah shall be cut off. What does it mean? Right off the bat, we know that sometime after Jesus' baptism, he's going to be cut off. What does that mean? Well, you see, if you cut something off, it usually dies. So what would it mean that Messiah is to be cut off? It means crucified, killed. When would he be crucified? The Bible tells us exactly. I want you to think about it. The angel tells us that there's 70 weeks determined for Daniel's people. And 69 of those weeks took us to AD 27. That leaves one week left in this original 490 years. And we have calculated that 483 of those until Messiah, Jesus, would come the first time. So it says that he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. You see, my friends, that's the remaining seven years of the 490 that was cut off for Daniel's people. I want you to look at this. It's incredible. The Bible says that Jesus would confirm a covenant with many for one week. Following our Bible study, if one day equals one literal year, that means seven years, right? He's going to confirm this covenant for seven years. If we go back to Daniel chapter 9, this time verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. What we're seeing here is that never again would a lamb sacrifice have to be offered because he, Christ, the true lamb, was going to bring an end to the earthly sacrifices, the earthly offerings in the temple, and that he, the lamb of God, would be offered on the cross. He's pointing them towards this ultimate sacrifice, this true sacrifice. My friends, I say praise God. And I praise God even more because it happened exactly on time. Happened exactly how God said it would happen. In exactly the time frame and in exactly the manner. The text said that he would bring an end to sacrifice. He would bring an end to offering in the middle of the week. What's the middle of seven? Three and a half, exactly. 
doing some high math here, aren't we? So the decree goes forth in 457 B.C. 483 years takes me to the fall of A.D. 27. We know that's when Jesus was baptized. The middle of one prophetic week is three and a half prophetic days or three and a half literal years. So from the fall of A.D. 27, when Jesus was baptized, we go forward three years and six months. And that brings us to the spring of A.D. 31. Precisely on the feast of the Passover, when Christ was crucified. You see, understanding Christ's work and his mission will help us to better understand how well each of these dates fit in the prophecy. Daniel not only prophesied about the coming of Christ and his baptism, he also knew the, date of his, the exact date of his death. What an amazing God we serve. Once we accept and understand these beautiful truths, this gives us absolute confidence in the Bible which in turn gives us absolute confidence as Jesus being our Savior. He died for you and I right on time, right on schedule. Daniel 9 is about Jesus Christ. It's about Messiah, the Savior of the world. God wrote of his death before he was even born to give us hope. To give us hope that our sins could be canceled through his death. And that he would overcome. And that therefore we could overcome. That he now lives his life in us if we submit to him. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant. A covenant is a promise. Promise. With many for one week. Now some people are confused. Who's this verse actually talking about, Dan? In fact, you will hear some people say, well, this really talks about the Antichrist. And then they tried to conclude that the Antichrist is going to have to make a covenant with the Jews. And that this will cause the Jews to rebuild their temple, which will then in turn cause them to cease their sacrifices. I see some people shaking their heads, but turn on, turn on Christian radio any day of the week and you're going to hear this. My friends, you will find nowhere in the Bible where the Bible says that the Antichrist will cause anybody to enter into a covenant. But the scripture records that Jesus, our Messiah, does. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. Page 963. Matthew 26. 27 and 28. So then he took the cup, and he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant. There's that word, covenant. Amen? New covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
You see, my friends, Jesus did confirm a covenant with many for the remission of sins during the Last Supper. He wasn't beginning it then. He was confirming that it was already in place. Think about how powerful that is. This covenant includes you and I tonight. When we accept his words and we believe his words by faith, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. My friends, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the covenant. Jesus confirms that covenant with his shed blood and he ratifies that covenant on the cross. Christ was crucified exactly on time. This prophecy from the book of Daniel is so amazing. Christ is the Messiah, and he was crucified exactly on time. And he was crucified for all who would accept him. Turn me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time had come, God sent forth his son. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, page 968, it says the time is fulfilled. It's referring to Jesus. Turn me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, page 1088. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ would die on time. Jesus confirmed this covenant he made from the beginning of time. And he confirmed the covenant with his blood. From the very moment Jesus was born into the earth, God was working on a time clock. He was working on a schedule. And that clock kept ticking And the prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus until his death on the cross. Amen? The high priest lifts his knife to slay the sacrificial lamb. The knife trembles in his hand, and at that moment, the curtain of the sanctuary rips from top to bottom. Never again would we have to look towards an earthly temple. Jesus had died on the cross. Jesus had shed his innocent, pure blood. Never again would the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, be recognized by God as having any value. Christ was baptized on time. He is the Messiah. Christ was crucified on time. He is the Messiah. My friends, Christ would die. He would be resurrected. And he would ascend as our high priest. We no longer need to look to an earthly temple because Jesus is in the heavenly temple. And I say, praise God. Our eyes aren't to be fixed on Jerusalem. Our eyes are to be fixed on a cosmic conflict between good and evil. A titanic struggle between Jesus and Satan. 
Jesus was crucified in A.D. 31. In the spring, exactly as the Bible foretold. But he still does not reject that nation. They killed him. For three and a half more years, he reaches out in mercy. He reaches out in love. He does not turn his back on us when we turn our back on him. My friends, Jesus does not forsake us when we forsake him. And in A.D. 34, something happens. One of the first deacons in the Christian church spoke up, and he gave a magnificent speech on how Jesus was the Messiah of the Old Testament. Can you imagine how popular that would have been with that audience? The Jewish leaders stoned Stephen. And it started a terrible persecution that scattered the early believers and opened the door to the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. A.D. 34 marks three things. It marks the end of the 490-year prophecy. The Jewish nation rejects Jesus as Messiah when they stone Stephen. The gospel then goes to the Gentiles throughout the world. Does the 490-year prophecy fit the life of Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Does the day-for-a-year application work for this prophecy? Absolutely. Now let's go back to where we started. What did Daniel's prophecy say? It said 70 weeks are cut off from the 2,300 years. But what about the rest of the time? Remember in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So this is where we started, remember? Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, page 866. It said, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So this prophecy tells us that the sanctuary would be cleansed and the judgment would begin. Remember, two parts to the prophecy. Part one, 490 years, and it ran out in A.D. 34. And that described the first coming of Jesus. So part two is the remainder of the prophecy. The remainder was for the Gentiles. So how far would this prophecy then extend into the future? You're going to see it's going to extend much closer to us than you would even realize. When you go forward with the remaining 1,810 years, it brings you to the year 1844. It wasn't that long ago, was it? 175 years. Say, well, 175 years is a long time, Dan. I'm only 53. It's not that long when we're talking about 2,300 years. What did the Bible predict? What happened at the end of the 2,300 days? According to the Scripture, it would be a fulfillment of Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. The hour of his judgment has come has come. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, for 2,300 days until the sanctuary, and then the sanctuary would be cleansed. The prophecy tells us that the sanctuary would be cleansed. It tells us that the judgment would begin. And I want you to think about this. This is a very solemn, serious prophecy to understand and to accept. 
Since 1844, we have been living in God's judgment hour. According to this prophecy, we are now living in a unique time in earth's history when the destinies of the entire human race are being decided. You see, God give John a vision of the judgment hour in Revelation. And he portrays it as a time when an urgent message is proclaimed by an angel flying swiftly through the skies, saying to every nation under heaven, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Revelation 14, verse 7. John says in Revelation, This, right now, is a special hour in earth's history. This is the call of the judgment hour. Now, friends, have you always been kind and loving to your family? Have you always spoken the truth? Have you never spoken gossip? Never taken something that belonged to someone else? Never lusted? Never envied the rich? Never coveted their luxuries? Do you have confidence today about how the final investigation in heaven will decide your case? I'll tell you a quick story as I get ready to close. A man named Friedrich Wilhelm. Friedrich Wilhelm Herschel. He was drafted in the army. And one night in the middle of a terrible battle, he was overwhelmed with terror, with fear. And he fled the battlefield. His father sent him to England to hide. That's where he changed his name to Wilhelm. And there he studied astronomy. He built a telescope. And with that telescope, he discovered a new planet. He became a famous man. In fact, the king of England sent for William to appear before him. But William was afraid. You see, the king's grandfather, George II, was the one who ruled Germany when William had deserted. William was sure that now he was going to be recognized as a deserter, as a deserter, and that he would be sentenced to death. And as he waited to see the king, a servant approached him and presented William with an envelope. And with trembling hands, William opened it, expecting to see his long-awaited sentence of death, a death decree. But instead, inside that envelope, William found a full and complete pardon. John chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, page 1168. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. My friends, Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. And he's our substitute. Paid the price for our sentence. So when your appointment with the king of the universe comes up on that final day of reckoning, you do not need to tremble with fear. Christ offers you a full pardon today. The 2300-day prophecy and the 70-week portion of it are both about Jesus. 
One tells us of his work to bring in pardon and forgiveness. The other part tells us of his intercessory work for us in the most holy place in the sanctuary of heaven. He is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That is his sole purpose for us. It's to intercede for us. Hebrews chapter 2 says he can sympathize with us because he is like us. He lived the life that we live. He faced the temptations that we faced. He understands our weakness. He can sympathize with each one of us. So the question, way back at the question and answer tonight. Way back. What is Jesus doing tonight? My friends, he is securing a pardon for you. He is securing a pardon for me. Before all the angels of heaven, he lifts his hands and he says, this man is one of mine. This woman is one of mine. And he is sending his spirit to speak to our hearts, to call us to him. What is Jesus doing now? He is there in judgment. He is there where the destinies of the dead are now being decided. He is there where the destinies of the entire human race will soon be decided. Jesus is there interceding for you and for me. Jesus is the author of our faith. He began a good work in you. But he is also the finisher of our faith. For he is interceding for us. His arms are outstretched to you tonight. He longs to represent you before the throne of God. But he can only represent you. He can only take those cases that are given into his hands. You must turn your case over to him. He can only represent you if you let him. Jesus will never say you are one of his if you're not. He will represent you, but he will never lie for you. If you will give your life to him, if you will become his, you can become his child once again. I ask you tonight, will you open your heart to him? Will you ask Jesus, Jesus, I have a sense tonight, like I never did before, I realize this is a special time in history. If you say, oh God, present my name before the Father, write pardon on my name. If you say to him, oh Jesus, cleanse my heart, he will intercede for you. He will stand for you before God's throne. My friends, is that your dearest wish tonight? Amen. Please bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. Oh Jesus, before the throne of God, I know, Lord, that I could never pass judgment alone. And Lord, I know that my record is full of guilt, full of recrimination. But Lord, I know you stand for me. I know you offer your record in my place. And Lord, you pour out this prophecy, this timeline, all of this detail, all of these dates, not just as an academic pursuit, but as a demonstration of your love, as your demonstration of how much you love mankind. And Lord, 
please continue to intercede for me and for these dear souls. Continue to call their hearts. Reckon with them. Strive for them. Stand in our place. And Lord, there may be some here that haven't given their hearts to you yet, Lord, and I just ask you to continue to please call to them, speak to them, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Continue to woo them and continue to always love them as you do. Lord, I thank you for these truths. I thank you for being a God of order, a God of time, but most of all, a God of love. And Lord, I ask you please to keep these dear souls safe, protect them as they travel. Bring them back to continue to study your word and bring them in to your loving kingdom. Lord, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow night,